Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. It was a year like no other in Canadian history. Let me be clear. If you're abroad, it's time for you to come home. A worldwide war against an invisible enemy. Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. From the front steps of his home, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau responded, rolling out an unprecedented support plan his government said would save the economy. Help is on the way. But in the effort to get the money out the door quickly, mistakes were made. It's an organization that has not just given members of the Trudeau family a platform, but a paycheck as well. I made a mistake in not recusing myself immediately from the discussions given uh, our family's history. And I'm sincerely sorry. Over the summer, the deadly virus ebbed, only to resurge again in the fall, worse than the first wave. I want to speak directly to you today because Canada is at a crossroads. And then finally, the light at the end of a long tunnel. This is a big deal, Mr. Speaker. It is a good news day for Canadians. And now an opportunity to talk to the Prime Minister in front of the very steps he has addressed the nation from throughout the year. A special edition of the West Block in conversation with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Welcome to a special edition of the West Block. I'm Mercedes Stevenson and I'm joined today by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Merry Christmas, Prime Minister. Merry Christmas, Mercedes. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. A really incredible and challenging year for Canada. No one foresaw the scale of this pandemic or how it would change all of our lives. How has it changed you as a Prime Minister and as a person? Well, I think Obviously, 2020 has hit everyone a whole bunch of different ways, uh, but some of the things remain. I think we've, we've really had to focus back on what really matters, being there for each other, uh, being uh, in close proximity with our, our loved ones for uh, long periods of time. But as a government, one of the first things we decided was that we would be there to support people through this, uh, that uh, we would, we would, you know, do as much as necessary for as long as necessary to have people's backs and I think it ended up proving not to be able just to help us through this pandemic it's actually setting us up well for uh, what's going to come after this pandemic to have been there to support people directly so much as we have. Did it change the way you view the role of government in people's lives? Well I think we're in a time of a certain amount of cynicism around government. People wonder if their institutions can actually be there to support them, if we're actually building for the future in the right ways. And there's a, there's a, a level of, of distance people are getting from uh, government actually making a difference in their lives. And what we got to see this year was Canadians coming together, neighbours being there for neighbours, but also all orders of government pulling together, working together, and delivering, uh, and making sure that people were able to get through this. What do you think your dad would say if he was alive to see you leading through this pandemic? Um, I, uh, he, he raised me to try and do the very best I could every step of the way, and to think about people first, uh, and I think that's what we did through this pandemic. A lot of people look back on the decisions that were made and, and they're critical. They say we didn't close the borders. The Canadian government said the pandemic wouldn't be that bad. 
If you could go back and change one thing about the handling of the pandemic in the early days, what would it be? Oh, I think there's lots of things that we learned that we would we would have done differently. We would have done uh, quicker. We would have uh, uh, made sure we had better stockpiles of PPE. I think there's there's lots of learnings that we had, and we were uh, figuring it out on the fly with a whole bunch of people around uh, the world doing the same thing. Um, but I think the core principles that we had, uh, listening to experts. Uh, if we were going to make mistakes, let's make mistakes on the sides of, of being more cautious and helping people to a greater degree uh, were the right ones. There's going to be lots to learn from how we, how we did and, and how we could do better, God forbid, if there's ever a next time. Um, but I think in general, uh, Canadians and all orders of government uh, have, have done reasonably well despite the far too many tragedies we've seen. Why do you think it is that the Canadian government and the experts advising you didn't think the pandemic would be that bad for Canada? Well, I think we were aware from the very beginning that, uh, that there were concerns. From the very beginning of January, Dr. Tam first convened uh, meetings to talk about the troubling reports coming out of China. Um, we had emergency response meetings later in January to watch it, but uh, we were, like everyone around the world, thinking it was an over there problem and hoping we'd be able to manage it. And then when everyone came home from spring break, uh, we suddenly realized the extent that it was already out there around the world. And um, sure, uh, maybe there were things we could have done differently, but even on the issue of closing down to international travel, that's not what really made a difference. That what made the difference was, you know, Canadians coming home from spring break, and 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 Canadians were always going to be able to come home. You don't close borders to Canadians. So, I think what we did as best we could uh, with all the information at the time, uh, learning, you know, readjusting as we went, and always remembering, putting Canadians first in terms of the support we sent them. I mean, sending them eight out of every $10 of support in COVID came from the federal government directly uh, right across the country. That made a difference and that's what we need to keep doing. The vaccines are now beginning to arrive. That's hope on the horizon for people that eventually life will go back to normal. But some Canadians are concerned about this and we've seen a lot of disinformation and misinformation about vaccines. What would you say to the anti-vaxxers out there who don't want to be vaccinated? Well, first of all, this, is, this has been an extremely trying year. And even just knowing that there are vaccines out there now being given to people is something that we should be celebrating. Because uh, in the beginning of this pandemic, 10 months ago, nobody knew even if there would be. Uh, any vaccines developed for uh, for COVID-19. And now we can see that with vaccines, next spring, next summer, things will be an awful lot better. So the end is in sight. But before we get there, we still have to get through this long, cold winter, and uh, we have to be able to continue to reassure Canadians. And that's part of why having a small number of doses as everyone builds up their production capacities uh, to both demonstrate the strength of our logistical chains uh, for Health Canada to continue to demonstrate the rigor with which it analyzed these vaccines and certified them as safe and effective and quite frankly for millions of Canadians to get vaccinated and millions of other Canadians to see that uh, it is going well and it's it's safe. I think we're going to be in a very different place in the spring where people rightly are cautious but at the same time 
We've made it through this by listening to experts, by listening to health professionals who are now all saying uh, that these vaccines are safe and effective. We've heard that there's a threat to the security of the vaccine in the cold chain. Dr. Bonnie Henry talked about that. Where are the concerns that there could be an attack or an attempt to hijack these vaccines? Well, that's one of the reasons why we're so pleased to have the Canadian Armed Forces uh, uh, Major General uh, Danny Fortin uh, in charge of the logistics and the delivery of vaccines. They are assessing, as they always do, all sorts of potential threats from snowstorms to, uh, to, uh, to, to criminal activities to make sure not just that, that we're, we're you know, protecting those vaccines, but that we're protecting the integrity of the supply chain so Canadians can continue to have confidence that uh, when they get a vaccine, um, they're going to be safe uh, moving forward and protected not just from COVID, but, uh, but part of the solution that's going to get us through this. When it comes to spending, your government has said there's no limit. There's no limit on what you'll spend to get through this and that you won't raise taxes on Canadians. Mm -hmm. So where does the money come from to pay down these billions of dollars? And I know there's low interest rates, but even if there was a 0% interest rate, you'd still have to pay it back. Okay, well, let's, let's step back for a second and realize this pandemic uh, was gonna be a massive gut punch to the Canadian economy. Uh, people uh, are, were hurting, people are hurting, people are losing their jobs, they're losing their businesses, they were losing, uh, not being able to put food on the table. It was obvious that when this hit, uh, someone, uh, was going to have to be there to help out Canadians. Now, if the federal government hadn't done that, a lot of Canadians would have been borrowing on their credit cards uh, and going into debt and seeing businesses go under. Well, credit card rates are about 19%, and as you pointed out, the federal government gets to borrow at next to 0%. So making the decision that we would take on extra debt so that Canadians wouldn't have to, to make sure that folks who lose their jobs, uh, that folks who are really uncertain about the future of their business are going to be able to get through. And that's, that is uh, what this momentary uh, deficits are. Is it is us making sure that Canadians have the support to get through this. Now, not only is that something we need to do to be there for each other and make sure Canadians can get through this, what the IMF, what the World Bank, what all international economic experts are saying is it's also the best way of making sure that the economy can come back once this pandemic is over as quickly and as strongly as possible. And if you think about it, if you're trying to rebuild from nothing, from rubble, it's going to take a lot longer than if you were able to hold on and maybe not have a pleasant time of it, but not see the kind of destruction that we're seeing in other economies and elsewhere around the world because of what the Canadian government did. Now, we are getting criticized uh, as having done too much for people and too quickly, but I know that as we start growing again, as the fundamentals of the Canadian economy, which are strong, are able to come roaring back, the growth rates in our economy will far outpace the interest payments that, uh, that are going to be uh, on the books. I have to ask you about your commitment to Canada's Indigenous peoples. I know it's something that's, that's deeply personal for you uh, and deeply emotional for you. Your government was not able to come through on your promise on the boil water advisories. How deeply do you regret that failure? Well, I think, first of all, uh, moving forward on reconciliation was always and is always going to be something that is a top priority for this government and will continue to be. But you can't fix in five years what took generations and centuries to break. 
what we have been able to do, I mean, the, the anniversary of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report uh, uh, came out, and we have reached 80% uh, of uh, the federal uh, uh, calls to action are either completed or well underway. That is significant progress. We have lifted uh, close to 100 boil water advisories that were there in place in some, place, in some cases for, for, for decades. There's a lot more to do and we're continuing to accelerate that work. But um, the, the, the work needs to, needs to continue. I'm, I'm impatient about it, but I'm not throwing up my hands because uh, it's really hard. On the contrary, because it's really hard means we're going to keep at it and we're going to keep working in partnership. Speaking of things that I know you've been working hard at and, and there's difficulty in making progress, Canada's relationship with China and of course the detention of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor who have now been in jail there unjustly detained for two years. Do you think there will be good news for their families before the new year? I, I certainly hope so. We have been working from the very beginning on this. This will be their third Christmas uh, in arbitrary detention in China. And what their, what their families have gone through is, is just horrific. What they've gone through uh, with an amazing amount of resilience. I mean, the reports I've seen from our consular access, uh, the work we've done, uh, they are just an inspiration to me in their strength, and we're doing everything we can, uh, both directly with China and uh, with allies. I mean, one of the things that we've seen is countries around the world who are friendly to Canada, but not necessarily you know, our top allies, are bringing it up with the Chinese, that this arbitrary detention is a real concern. Because yes, they're concerned about Canadians, but they're also concerned about the, the coercive diplomacy that China is increasingly using, that if they're using it against Canada, they could use it against everyone. So we're really seeing the world come together in a, in a very strong way, and we will continue all our efforts to bring them home. Australia is a government that is often compared to Canada and a country that's often compared to Canada. They've gotten quite tough on China. Do you think it's time for Canada to take a similar approach or is that even possible when we still have the two Michaels in detention over there? Well, we've taken uh, some significantly stronger measures over the past, uh, past while, but everything that we will do will be first and foremost uh, based on what is in Canadians' best interest. Of course, what do we do to bring home uh, to Michaels? But what do we do to ensure that uh, Canadians continue to, uh, to see their values reflected in the world and economic opportunities as well? And walking that line will look different for, uh, for different countries, uh, but I'm very confident that we're getting that balance right in Canada. I want to ask you about the carbon tax. It's something that your government had promised wouldn't go up. It is going up. A lot of analysts had said it has to go up in order to be effective. A tax is, by its very nature, designed to deter certain kinds of activity or to encourage other kinds. Why do you think your government has such a challenging time explaining it to Canadians? I think Canadians understand that if you want less pollution, we'll put a price on it. I mean, there are still, unfortunately, a lot of conservative politicians out there that want to make pollution free. We don't think that makes sense. We know that putting a price on pollution and returning more money uh, to families than they actually pay with that extra price on pollution is the best way of moving forward. Because not only are you incentivizing the kind of uh, the kinds of investments, the kinds of transformation of our economy that are going to be good and competitive for the coming years, including with better jobs, you're supporting 
hardworking families through it. And that's where, in the places where the federal price on pollution has been brought in, including as we increase the price, more money is going to be delivered to Canadians. And uh, I always said that there would be an opportunity for Canadians to go to an election before that price starts rising again. And that's, that's happening in 22-23. I think uh, everyone understands that in this minority government, we are more than likely to have an election before, uh, before 2023. And Canadians can pronounce on it. But I know that Canadians understand you can't have a plan for the economy without having a plan for the environment. That's just not the case anymore. We have a strong plan to uh, surpass our climate change goals for 2030 and get to net zero by 2050. I look forward to the contrast with the plans that the other parties put forward for the economy and the environment. Do you think the Trans Mountain Pipeline is still economically viable? Yes, I do. I think it's really important that we be able to get our energy resources to markets other than the United States. We are captive of the American market and being able to export our oil to the Pacific uh, is going to be really important. It's part of the transformation of our economies that we need to get to. And all the profits from the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion uh, will be poured into the green, uh, green transition because we know that as we improve our energy mix, we need to uh, work with the oil and gas sector in order to innovate to get to where we need to be. Joe Biden is the president-elect in the United States. He has promised one of the first things he's going to do is to cancel the pipeline going from the United States, pardon me, from Canada to the United States. How do you think you can make an argument to him to preserve Keystone and do you think that's realistic? I've been making that argument to American Democrats and to, to people in general for the past seven years that the Keystone uh, is an integral part of uh, Canada, uh, Canada and America's uh, energy security and uh, it's an argument I will continue to make. It's a conversation I had in my very first chat with uh, President-elect Biden as President-elect and we'll continue working together. I think there's an awful lot of things, including on the environment, on jobs, where Canada and the U.S. and the incoming U.S. administration are going to be uh, very well aligned and I look forward to continue to work in ways that are going to create jobs and protect the environment at the same time. Opioids are killing thousands and thousands of Canadians, especially during this pandemic. I know out in British Columbia, it's been of particular interest to look at drug legalization, or at least the decriminalization of small amounts of opioid drugs. Is that something your government would be willing to formalize in the criminal code? Well, in, in so many ways, as usual, BC is leading the way. They led the way in putting a price on pollution. They've uh, led the way on safe consumption sites. So when we took office, there was only one, uh, one place in the, war, in, the, in the country for safe consumption uh, with insight. And now there are many dozens of those sites that we've been able to set up. Um, you know, we'll continue to work with BC and watch BC as leading the way on so many issues. Uh, I'm certainly uh, looking forward to get, getting back out to BC. Uh, it's been a long, a long year without uh, visiting my, uh, my, my West Coast roots. Um, I think you know, there, are, there are things that we're looking at with BC around, uh, around uh, changes to the way uh, drugs are, are looked at and handled. Uh, to align more with what local policies want to be in BC. I think we're still a ways from uh, changes to the criminal code or decriminalization uh, of harder drugs. Uh, but we're always going to be very interested in following the science and looking at what uh, certain innovative uh, 
places or people are, are trying to do to, to tackle this terrible epidemic. Prime Minister, that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us, and we wish a very Merry Christmas to you and your family. I wish everyone a Merry Christmas, but especially a very Happy New Year. <laughs> we all hope so. We all want it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Going hard. Thanks so much. Thanks for seeing